Welcome to our podcast, The Future is Female. My name is Augusta. And my name is Alex, and today we will be talking about female representation in government and gender quotas. First, we have to answer the question, why is female representation in government important? I feel that to have a functioning democracy, there has to be diverse representation. It is a right to have representation in government, as well as integrally important to policymaking, decision-making, and shaping government policy priorities. The National Democratic Institute states that women's political participation is proven to create greater responsiveness to citizen needs and cooperation across party and ethnic lines, create longer-lasting peace, increase citizen confidence in democracy, and shift government priorities to policies that emphasize quality of life and the priorities of families, women, and ethnic and racial minorities such as health and education. Additionally, Women's participation in politics also helps advance gender equalizing policies. Female representation in government is necessary for high-functioning democracy. However, there are immense challenges that women face actually getting into government positions. Struggles for women in politics are greatly impacted by cultural and public life of society, and cultural norms affect gender biases in electorates as well as electoral systems, which can amplify these gender biases. There are stigmas against women in power almost everywhere in the world. Women in politics continue to face structural, socioeconomic, institutional, and cultural barriers to positions of power in all aspects of society. Quotas are one way to ensure that women are given an opportunity to be elected into office. Quotas entail that women must make up a certain number or percentage of the members on a candidate list, a parliamentary assembly, a committee, or a government, depending on the government structure and the type of quota. There are many different types of gender quotas, and some are more effective than others, which we will discuss more in our interview with Professor Rickney. We were lucky enough to get a hold of Joanna Rickney, a professor of economics at the Swedish Institute for Social Research at Stockholm University. We found Professor Rickney through a paper she worked on called Gender Quotas and the Crisis of the Mediocre Man. Professor Rickney spoke to us about the arguments for and against gender quotas, the different types of quotas, and the impact of the zipper quota that the Social Democrat Party in Sweden adopted, and how it has impacted women's representation in government. We will now get to our interview with Professor Rickney. So our first question was just generally, what are some of the arguments for and against gender quotas? One of the most common arguments against gender quotas has to do with meritocracy. So that that argument says that if we have an organization where we hired the best people, so we had meritocracy in the hiring, and then we introduce a policy that forces the organization to hire somebody else and not the people they originally took in, then by definition that policy is going to force out some competent people because the firm started out by having the best people there. So that's in a nutshell the argument, like the meritocracy argument against gender quotas that when you institute this policy to force an organization to recruit more women, you are going to replace some good uh, men who were there before. And there are additional arguments for and against quotas. And arguments for quotas, uh, the most common one has to do with human rights, uh, especially in politics, although quotas apply to other sectors in society as well. 
quotas in politics are seen as a way to ensure women's human right to participate in politics. So there's just, regardless of, of merits or anything else, there's that human right. And another common argument in favor of quotas is, is called an instrumental argument. So it speaks about women in office as being instruments of something more. If we have a quota, women are going to do different things as politicians. They're going to improve women's and men's lives in different ways. Women might inspire additional women to come in in the future. So more women through the quota is going to be an instrument to improve women's participation even more. Things like that. In your paper, you talked about how quotas decrease the amount of mediocre men in the government. And so I was just wondering if you wanted to touch on how that ties into the meritocracy argument. Yes, absolutely. So what we argue in the paper is that in order to think theoretically about the impact of quotas on meritocracy, we have to think hard about whether or not there was meritocracy to begin with. So as I said, the argument uh, that quotas hurt meritocracy really starts from this important assumption that we had meritocracy from the start. But what tends to happen in society is rather that you have one majority group and they tend to hire more people from the same social group and disregard um, merits in that process. So this is what we would think of maybe as old boys networks or these uh, smoke-filled rooms. You let gender uh, supersede merits in some ways. So if, the, if, a, if an organization has that type of insider recruitment, then a quota can come in and improve meritocracy because it forces the organization to, to get rid of that more inefficient system and instead uh, look for for people with better qualifications. So in our paper, we studied Swedish political parties and we studied uh, one particular party, which was the Social Democrats. And when we interviewed the head of the women's branch of that party as part of our project, she told us that when the quota was introduced in the early 90s, there were lots of objections against it. And the people in the women's branch thought that these objections were coming mostly from uh, mediocre men. So it was a joke that they had that they called the gender quota, oh, this is the crisis of the mediocre men. And that's also where we took the title for our paper because that's exactly what, what we find when we analyze that quota. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I really loved reading about that. I hadn't even really thought about the gender quotas in that way as sort of like increasing the competition because in a lot of ways in a male-dominated government structure, people talk about, oh, if a gender quota, you know, you're putting mediocre people in place of like, you know, some people who were there on their merit and things like that yeah. but in reality it creates more competition because these women are coming in and they're really qualified they're really you know they have a right to be there and so it makes the, the other people more competitive in that way which was really interesting to read about. Can you talk a little bit more about gender quotas and tokenism and if there's like a way to like avoid tokenism at all or like maybe reduce like its negative effects? 
So I have another project right now, which is, is the, which is about so, uh, sexual harassment in the in the labor market, and that uh, same argument that we well the same theory on tokenism applies to the labor market more broadly and also to politics. So the tokenism theory would be something like when one group is a very small proportion in an organization, it becomes very salient who those people are. So if there's a very small proportion of men, like just one man in 10 people or just one woman in 10 people, it's very visible. People can see that that person is different. And so they risk to treat that person as a man or a woman first and as a colleague or peer second. And that's what's driving, um, according to that theory, this behavior, sexualization of those people or thinking about them in terms of stereotypes rather than as individuals, they become a representative of their group. And what we see in data for the full labor market is that there is a lot a higher rate of sexual harassment against those minorities, both men and women. And of course, quotas could function as a way to increase the, the proportion of the minority enough so that they don't become so salient. So presumably it could help to, to reduce problems like um, mistreatment of others, such as sexual harassment or other types of mistreatment. Awesome. So I guess it's the sort of thing where, like at first it might be hard, but the quotas are aimed to just kind of help boost it almost, push process along. Right. So a quota is intended, well, it's a little bit different because usually, as I said in the beginning, quotas are just intended to create a, a greater proportion of women. Uh, if we think of it as a human rights argument, that is the only purpose of it. You know, if we achieve that, pur that purpose, we can say that it was successful. But then there are lots of other positive effects that can come out of quotas. For example, improving the work environment of the women. And of course, if, if that happens, that could improve women's long-term chances in terms of their careers. We, we see in our Swedish data that these sexually harassed gender minorities, they tend to leave the workplace, they tend to move to uh, lower paid jobs after they leave. So long term, we could really imagine these positive consequences for the health of those minority, <laughs> gender minorities, for their careers, etc. That's so interesting. And another point that I came across in your paper was about the the different types of gender quotas. And I know that the Social Democrats use the zipper regulation, so alternating female and male on their party lists. And I was just wondering, out of the different types of gender quotas, what makes this the most impactful or why did they choose it? Yeah, so in politics, there are some different types of quotas that parties can have, and the same types can apply to any job, I mean, uh, in, in a private firm as well. And one important difference between types of quotas is um, candidate quotas. Uh, versus uh, placement mandates. So for a candidate quota, what it's saying is just that you need this and this proportion of women among the candidates for a position. So say 40% of the electoral ballot or the people who stand for office should be women. And uh, yeah, that's it. But with, uh, so, so that obviously doesn't guarantee that these women actually get elected and get placed in these jobs. The other one, which is placement mandates, it's, it ensures that women are placed as candidates in ways that ensures their election. So this would be like saying in a private firm, you know, if I recruit for a new job, 
uh, or say I recruit for two jobs, <laughs> okay, a candidate quota would be, okay, half of my candidates for the two jobs should be women, but I can recruit two men, that's fine. Uh, and a placement mandate is to say, okay, we're going to recruit, recruit two people, one will be a woman and one is going to be a man. So that's what happens with um, zipper ballot, because in Sweden, you count in our in the election system here you count seats from the top of the list so a list has names in order and suppose the party wins six seats you get the six top people get into office so if every second one is a woman which is the sipper also known as zebra quota in africa which i think is really cute then every if every second person is a man or woman six people elected you guarantee that there's going to be 50 percent women Right, so the placement mandate guarantees women to get in, which has turned out in research that compares the efficiency of these policy designs, that has turned out to be very important because if a party is only um, told that it needs to have a certain women as proportion of the candidates, those women candidates tend to be placed in such ways that they don't end up being elected. When you just mentioned how like wouldn't be a guarantee, right, if they don't have the zipper or a quota, the women are put up on like to be a candidate that they won't get elected. Is that a function, do you think, of inherent biases the electorate has? Or is that different for every country? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's not so easy to answer. But in the Swedish case, we do have preference votes, but it's voluntary. And the preference votes which you can cast for, you can mark a little box next to a candidate that you like on the ballot, but you mostly vote for the party and not the person. So preference votes, even though we have them, they don't really matter for who gets elected. So in, in those types of systems, it's really parties that put the women in very low ranks on the ballot so they don't end up getting seats. And voters are not really able to influence that in our system. So for those types of election systems with candidate quotas that are inefficient, we can say that parties are doing a lot of that, you know, placement of women in low positions. But in other types of systems that have open lists or more uh, preference voting, then both voters and, and parties may be um, biased against women. And in empirical research on, on voter bias, it really differs across countries. In many countries, you find that voters tend to be more favorable towards women, for example, in Latin America. In the US, I'm not aware, I, I don't think, I think there's mixed evidence. There's really no evidence either way that like, doesn't really matter. And in some other countries, like in Europe, there's definitely evidence that voters are biased against women. But our next question is, uh, besides quotas, what are some other tactics that can increase female representation in politics? I think, for example, preventing threats and violence and hostility against politicians is one type of policy that's important because especially now when politicians need to interact more and more with voters online, there can be very negative treatment, especially against women politicians and especially against women politicians with power. So having policy in place that takes these types of hostile and, and like violent behavior seriously and prevent them efficiently, I think is one important thing that can be done. Another type of policy could be 
uh, role models to try to get more women to go into politics by having more women role models. So there's definitely some research on that, that putting women into power and, and exposing people to these positive role models can, can help more women get enthusiastic about going into politics. And I mean, personally, the work environment, I think that's another interesting area of, of potential policy interventions. As I said, treatment from colleagues, um, this incivility, microaggressions, sexual harassment, this gender harassment, all these different things matter, I think, in terms of feeling a sense of belongingness and wanting to pursue a career in a specific field and to stay there rather than feeling more like a UFO that don't, you don't really fit in. You have to struggle all the time. And then over time, that can lead to a lower sense of attachment to that career. So those are three things that there are many more, of course, but. From a lot of the research that we've done, just like generally in society, Sweden is one of the most gender, gender equal countries. And we were wondering from someone who lives and studies there, like if you had any thoughts on why there hasn't been like a female prime minister yeah, many people are wondering that. Um, <laughs> right now, we have more female than male party leaders here uh, in terms of number. Um, but the, both of the two largest parties do have men as their leaders. So even in the next election, you know, our likely prime minister is going to be a man again. And at one point, we were really close to getting a female prime minister because the Social Democrats had its first female leader. But something that happened was that there was semi-rebellion against her from local divisions within the party. People were not happy in the localities, you know, the local party bosses or <laughs> however you want to think about it. So um, she was eventually pushed out of that position and it didn't take that long. So that was sad to see. It seemed to be coming from inside the party, a lot of the critique against her. So what, what is causing this? I don't have a good answer, but I am equally, I think, intrigued by it and in a negative way. Um, because it really seems like it's something that should have happened. Sorry, that's the best answer I've got. People want to find out. So when you find out, <laughs> let us know. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I mean, it's like, it's already so important to have so many female leaders as the heads of parties. Mm. So yeah, it's just interesting. How do they get into that one, one spot? Yeah, because our neighboring countries, Norway, you know, Finland, Denmark, they all have had women has just, so it's, it doesn't really make sense. Maybe it's just, I don't know. Yeah. I wish I had a better like thought or answer, but maybe you come back to me in 10 years with <laughs> more experience and just life living and I will have, have <laughs> yeah. <more> idea. <laughs> Looking forward. <laughs> well, I think those were all of our questions, but that was so interesting, especially I hadn't even thought about the the idea of the work environment and how that really impacts women going into politics, going into those different fields that are male dominated. I yeah. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. <laughs> One aspect that really stood out to me was that the type of quota determines the amount that 
female representation in government is impacted. The zipper quota that the Social Democrats in Sweden adopted truly ensures that not only are women put on party lists, but they're actually elected. Additionally, the positive snowball effect that gender quotas start was really interesting to hear about. More women on party lists and then in government positions leads to women having more power while they're in government, feeling less tokenism, and being able to work in a better environment. These women become role models and inspire more women to go into politics, which starts a positive cycle over again. Listening back on the interview, one thing that stood out to me was when measuring the success of gender quotas, one simply looks as if it was able to place more women in political positions. While this may seem obvious, and this kind of measurement is powerful, I found it to be very one-dimensional, and it reminds me that there are so many complex layers for achieving equality for women in society in general, and while gender quotas will do great things to help women achieve greater equality, there is so much that needs to be done. Before we go, we would like to thank Professor Rickney for offering her time and insights to us as we further explored gender quotas. Thank you all for listening, and we hope to have you back on the next episode. We will explore female policymakers' roles in conflict resolution. That's all for today.